and they moved to the other end of my street, on the other street that teed into it, I guess it was a little bit bigger house. And, and so, you know, there, there were a number of kids our age uh, in the neighborhood, but not that many, so you played with who you had, and, and so maybe we just didn't see eye to eye on life, but we kept playing together because that was who we had. And so when we didn't see eye to eye together on life, um, I guess fights broke out. Uh, one, one I find, I remember in particular, and, and it was a ridiculous fight. We were playing backyard football, as we used to do, um, two on two, two on three, three on three, whatever, and, and as, as rough as we could be without somebody quitting. That was, that was how we played tackle football. And I don't remember the exact circumstances of this, but somehow the, the game of football morphed into a game of wrestling. I'm not sure where in that it happened, but suddenly everyone was wrestling with everybody else. And, and this other guy, uh, my, my friend, you know, came up to me and he goes, you want to fight, you want to fight? And in retrospect, I think he meant wrestling. But there was a history there. So I said, sure. And I decked him across the, the with, with a hook to his forehead. And uh, that wasn't very nice. Um, and... It, you know, there were three things, really, I, I did wrong in that moment. Uh, the first one was I wasn't really listening to my friend. Because, again, in, in retrospect, I don't think he meant, do you want to take a swing at me? I think he meant, do you want to wrestle on the ground? Uh, secondly, I, I, I spoke way before I had enough information and just, yeah, sure, Pow. Um, not cool. Third, obviously, I had some anger issues as well. And, you know, that is exactly what James is getting at here. Um, funny, all three of those things go together, and they go together for James here in verses 19 through 20 of chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I certainly did not heed uh, James 1 that afternoon. This passage, we continue to go through a series on James, James, the, the call to wholeness, and uh, the big idea of this passage is really pretty obvious. That we must control our tongues and our hearts to live lives that are pleasing to God. It's pretty on the surface. It's a simple passage. Uh, you can outline it really simply. It breaks down very basically. The first part of the passage is a threefold command. The second part of the passage gives some sobering <clears throat> reasoning for that command. And it doesn't take a biblical scholar to see the outline of this passage. It's pretty obvious. And it also doesn't take a biblical scholar to get the meaning of this passage. Uh, it, it, you know, these verses are relatively clear, and that's not a good thing for preaching. Um, and what I mean by that is preaching is a lot easier for the preacher if the passage is complicated and he can spend uh, you know, 30 minutes trying to unpack the meaning of the passage before he gets to anything else. And it's impressive, and, you know, and, and it's, it, but it's easy. It's easy. Um, and, and when the meaning is pretty plain on the surface... Um, that's where the hard stuff 
takes place in preaching. Uh, because now I need to fill the better part of an hour explaining a short passage that you already understand. But, there, but there's another aspect of, of preaching that's just as important, and, and it's probably far more important than explaining the meaning uh, of the passage, and, and that's where I need to spend the, the, the bulk of my time this morning. And, and that's with good reason. And we, we understand that it's important that the preacher explains the passage when it's complicated, because if you don't understand it, you can't apply it. We get that. But the more challenging part is always the application. It's always the application. Um, scripture is, the author of Hebrews writes, sharper than a double-bladed sword, he says it's able to slice and dice the most impenetrable of barriers like the division of soul and spirit as if that were even possible. But the word of God can do it. And so really our goal this morning is, is, is the same as every Sunday but maybe it's a little bit more, the contrast is more stark because of the nature of the passage. Is, it forces us to, to more application. And, and it's really asking us to just to plunge the dagger of Scripture into our hearts to let it penetrate us, to cauterize what's sick, to extricate the uh, diseased tissue, and as a result, to leave us more whole than before. And so, let's operate. Verse 19 James starts by saying, know this, my beloved brothers. And uh, I think most of us are using the ESV. I know some people use the NIV and things like that. If, you're, if you happen to be a, an old translation carrier, like a, like a KJV or NASB, some of those old translations miss that this is a command. And they take it as an indicative, like a statement of fact. Uh, but this is a command. Know this. And in saying that, James is putting an exclamation point on the following statement. So when you consider the fact that if you take 19 and 20, if you've been reading through the book of James, you see that 19 and 20, they don't like naturally flow. There's not an obvious logical connection between the material before it. There's not an obvious logical connection between the immediate uh, verses after them. And so this really just kind of jumps out. But because of that, it, it can also be overlooked. It's a very short little statement. We might be tempted to pass over it really quickly. And so James gives it this elaborate preface. Know this, my beloved brethren. James uses this type of expression three times. And each time it's a command. Each time it's his way of, of waking the audience up and saying, guys, this is really important. Just pay attention for one Quick moment, you see it in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Here we have, know this, my beloved brethren. In chapter 2, verse 5, we have, listen, my beloved brethren. So we really need to pay attention to this short little blip here. This is James realizing he's just gone on and on about trials and temptations, and he wants to shock his readers wants to pound their ears wide open. So know this. 
And so we too know this. Pay attention. If you were a follower of Christ, Christian, then please pay close attention at this point because it's easily missed. Many of us miss it, and we must not miss this. He says, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. So it's a threefold command. Let every person, and it might be better translated with a, with a touch more mandate, a touch more authority. Every person must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And, and there's an extra emphasis in shifting this command sort of to the third person out of the, normally we put out commands in the second person, you. But the force of it would demand every single Christian in James' audience to kind of step back, reflect, and say, how is it, I take responsibility for this, let every man, I'm, I'm one of those every people, what is this saying to me? Again, he's trying to emphasize, I really need you guys to listen to this. And first James says, each of us must be quick to hear or listen, depending on your translation. I don't think there's any difference here in the force of these two words. There's not much to break down, but, I, but let's break down what's there. And I don't want to be pedantic, but it's important. I want to make sure the force sinks in. When, when Scripture is simple, it's too easy to pass over it lightly. And we want to hear it for what it says. James commands us to listen. Sometimes the idea of hearing or, or listening in the Bible uh, basically has the sense of obey. In, in, in the sense that, you know, your, your dad might have yelled at you when you were a kid, you better listen to your mother. It, and you know that he didn't just mean taking the words she's saying. He meant you better do exactly what she said or there's going to be a problem. So sometimes in Scripture, that's the idea of listen or hear, but, but not hear. Be because it's parallel to this next command about speaking, James is clearly talking about the opposite of speaking, which is listening. It's the opposite of spouting content into the air. It's the opposite of receiving information being provided by another human being. It's listening. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's the second greatest commandment. And it's only neighborly. It's only loving to treat the ideas and the beliefs and the convictions that are breathed in our specific direction with some consideration. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is the, is the golden rule that Jesus gave us. When we speak, we expect, don't we? We expect that what we say will be attended to, it'll be received, it'll be given due consideration. That's what we expect when, when we spout words into the air. And when that doesn't happen, we feel ignored. We feel unimportant. We feel unvalued. It can upset us. And so the inescapable 
implication of all of this is that we must listen. Now, continue to break it down. It's two words, I know, but they're important. James says we need to be quick to listen. Listening is not something for the Christian that we get around to. Listening is not something that eventually gets done. Listening is something that must be done promptly and it must be done with rapt attention. So in our listening, we must be prompt. Now James is, of course, writing to the Christian community. We've talked about that. They're, they're in the, the, the diaspora. They're, they're Jewish Christians spread outside of Judea. And I think that that's the heart of the concern here is then the listening that's going on within the Christian community. The members of a church then, the members of a congregation, should show love and respect for one another because loving and respectful people are like their Savior, Jesus Christ. And one way we show love and respect is by listening well. So I, I had to confess and, and ask uh, forgiveness last night because last night at dinner, Sarah and I were having a conversation. Um, no, we weren't. That's not true. She said a bunch of stuff. I didn't listen. Um, I mean, I have no idea in the moment. I, and I, think I, I think I had a vague idea what she was talking about at that point in time. Um, but it faded really quickly. And by about two minutes after dinner, I had no idea. Uh, I had to ask her later. I'm like, you remember during dinner we, we had a conversation. You talked to me about something. What was it? Because I don't remember any of it, and I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> she didn't remember either, so I don't, I don't know what the, that means. Um, <laughs> but I was reading something on my phone, I think, and I mean, it's, it's dinner time, right? I mean, it's a time to set aside the work of the day just for a moment and to reconnect, to reestablish priorities, and I, I didn't do that. I wasn't listening to my wife, but yeah, but also my sister in Jesus Christ. Husbands, we got a few of them here. Do you listen to your wives? Wives, do you listen to your husbands? Children, even grown children, which would be all of us, uh, except these couple, three over here. But you're the little one still, so you still count. Do you listen to your parents? Because I know how that goes. We, we get old and we think that we've done the listening we need to do to our parents. And so they're, they're like the easiest ones to tune out, right? But parents, there's a couple of them in here. Do you listen to your children? Ben, you don't have to worry about this yet, but trust me. They're going to start spouting off all kinds of stuff that seems absolutely worthless to you. But uh, it's not worthless to them. Growth groups, small groups, Bible studies. Let me push you guys a little bit. Growth groups, I think, are a great test of this because they're predicated on people conversing about Scripture. When they're done well, everyone in the group is speaking about Scripture, about one of the most important topics that we could possibly discuss in this lifetime. These are the very words of God. 
Now be honest, Christian, in, in your growth group or in your small group, in your Bible study, do you listen to everyone? And I, I'm not talking about your growth group as a whole. Yeah, oh yeah, we give everyone a chance to speak. No, you as an individual, do you listen to everyone? Or are there voices you tune out? Are there individuals maybe you see eye to eye with and, and those you don't see eye to eye with? Uh, maybe there's people in your group who rub you the wrong way or, or maybe seem a little overbearing or maybe seem just a, they're just a little too excited about what's going on in Scripture here. Or maybe they're too dull and, and you, 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 you tune them out. My, my grandfather, he had the, the best strategy on this. Um, he pretended like he was deaf for, I think, my entire childhood. Um, my dad was from Kansas City, and so uh, his, his relief was to turn on a Royals game and uh, turn off his hearing aid. So when I'm doing this, this is, this is my, I'm, I've got to explain this gesture to you. This is my grandfather turning off his hearing aid when no one's looking. This is what he would do. And then when people would try to have a conversation with him, he would just, huh? Eh. I don't know that I had more than one substantial conversation with my grandfather in uh, 17 years of my life or, or whatever it was when he passed away. That was just, just his personality. He, the world bothered him, and he didn't want to be bothered by the world. Um, it was a really sad thing, to be honest with you. Um, but that was my grandfather, and, and we have our own ways of turning our hearing aids off, don't we? We ignore them, we, we zone out, maybe in your growth group you, you look like you're uh, they're talking and you look like you're studying the passage on your phone or on your tablet, but you're really checking Instagram and, um, until that person's done speaking. It's not very loving though, is it? It's not really showing them the care and consideration that Christ showed us. And all this has implications for missions as well. The, the church, you see, the, the Christian community is, is a model community. Tim Keller uses the metaphor of a model home. And when a new subdivision is being built, the builder often builds an initial house that's similar to what the other homes in the neighborhood are going to look like. Uh, and so prospective buyers can view the model and make decisions about what they want and what they like based off that model it gives them an idea. They can imagine themselves living in this community and what being a part of this community might look like. And so it's, it's sort of a, a trial. Uh, you know, a lot of apartment complexes do this as well. And some of you have rented apartments downtown maybe where uh, one op, uh, apartment was set up or there was a mocked up apartment where maybe the manager works out of that apartment so that when you go in to talk about leasing, you can kind of envision the space and, and what it looks like, and you get an idea of what it's supposed to look like. Um, in the same way, the church is a model home or a model apartment of the kingdom of heaven. We are a, a microcosm, slightly flawed, but an example of what God's new community will be like. And when people encounter the church, they're receiving an opportunity to get a taste 
of what a restored and, and renewed and a, and a recreated reality will be like when Jesus returns and, and creates a new heavens and a new earth. And, and on the basis of what they see in our community, they can make a more informed decision about whether they want the community that God is offering. And so the question for us as a church then is are we representing God's community well? Or are our actions causing us to lie about what God's community is actually like. So do you listen well with your family of faith? And go beyond that. What about with your coworkers or the fellow gym rats? Do you know what they believe? Why they believe it? Do you know why they live the way they live? Have you ever asked about their life experiences? How can we speak the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, in relevant ways to people who do not know or understand? Unless we get to know them and understand them. And how can we know and understand them unless we're willing to listen? So the implication for us is clear. If we fail to listen and to listen quickly, this is a command. That means we are in Sin. This is not an optional thing. We like to focus on the big ones, right? You know, I don't, I don't murder anyone. I don't cheat on my wife, so I'm pretty good. But this is clearly a sin. And I think it's one that's deep, deep in our culture's heart. The second part of this command is to be slow to speak. And in a way, this is the other side of the same coin, right? One reason we need to be slow to speak is because we need time to listen. But there's more to it than that. The the Bible is replete with injunctions and and, and sage advice and words about not speaking. A few uh, examples, Proverbs 10, 19, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Proverbs 13.3, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Proverbs 17.27, whoever restrains his words has knowledge. And he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Proverbs 29, 20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. You notice that all these are from Proverbs, which is a part of the Bible that we call the the wisdom literature. And so James is clearly drawing from this genre of, of, of Scripture here. But he's taking things a bit further. Because wisdom literature tends to speak in aphorisms, in in these pithy statements that represent general truths. They're usually not written as absolutes, and when they are written as absolutes, they're not necessarily to be taken absolutely. It's just the genre of literature. But James doesn't just warn that bad generally comes from a hasty tongue, as Proverbs might warn. Rather, he is commanding that the Christian community be not so quick to speak. So he's taking it up 
couple notches here. Do we really need to discuss the problem here? Because I, I think it's intuitive, but we have gotten so good, or bad, as the case might be, about speaking quickly that we have invented ways to communicate faster without even speaking itself. And, and we decided that those weren't fast enough. We invented the salacious headline and the retweet button so that before we even consider a matter, before we even read an article, we can click share or click retweet and communicate that article to the entire world. But from the sound of the title, I think it really is going to nail that guy. Now, we know it's bad, but do we know how bad it is? I mean, consider that it was bad enough in the first century of the Middle East that even though news traveled in the scope of days or weeks or months, and not seconds like it does today, that James felt the need to take a pause and lay out the importance of these ideas. If it was that serious of an issue in first century uh, diaspora, how much worse must it be for us? We arguably communicate more than any other generation in history. We blog, we text, we caption, we meme, we microblog, we hashtag, and we aren't slow about it. There's nothing about our communication that is slow. And we need to be slow to speak or communicate. And let me suggest um, three reasons. And, and we could go further, but let me give you three reasons why. First, speaking is a presumptuous action. Speaking suggests, you tell me if I'm wrong, speaking suggests I think I have something to say, and I think that that something is worthwhile, and so therefore I think others should listen to me. Right? That's, that's the nature of, of speaking. And really at a, at a root level, it's pretty presumptuous. And, and, and frankly, it, it requires a pretty good deal of hubris, says the guy who's been talking for 20 minutes or so, expecting you to listen to me. Um, I mean, clearly the gospel, clearly the gospel is is something that we know is worthwhile and is worth listening to. And it's so important that it doesn't matter. We want to be respectful, but at some point it doesn't matter whether someone agrees that it's worth listening to. It's still worth us speaking it. It's still worth us sharing it. God's truth in the scriptures is that kind of thing. But so much of what we discuss is not really worth it. We believe it is because someone liked it or someone put a thumbs up on it. But it's really not. And, and I get sucked into it too. And I'm not perfect in this area by any stretch of the imagination. It can be easy to say something, but it's a lot harder to stop and ask, is this beneficial? Is this worthwhile? Just because others will listen to you doesn't mean it's a good idea for them to listen to you. 
let alone for you to think that it's a good idea for them to listen to you. I think if we were more careful about what we chose to speak, if we had a bit of a bias toward those things which are really important that build each other up, I think we would communicate less, but also more. The communication would be smaller in number, but richer in significance. Second reason I think maybe we should be slower to speak is because the older I get, the, the, the less certain I am of most things, and the more certain I am about a very few things. That hasn't always restrained my tongue, I confess, or my fingers, as much as it should have. <clears throat> but if we're Christians, then the heart of our theology is that we, are, we were once dead in our sins. Without hope, without God in this world. That's what Paul writes in Ephesians. And that's despite the fact that the universe itself declares the goodness and the greatness of God, the God who made us and formed us in his image to be like him. Though everything around us screams his name, we are utterly ignorant of it. So ignorant of him, in fact, that we need his Holy Spirit to, to grab our hearts, melt them, and, and begin pumping them for us until we spring to life. Because without the Spirit, we would not see how far away from God we were. We would not see how truly holy he was. We wouldn't recognize that the only hope for our fallenness was in his Son who went to the cross who died, who rose again to conquer sin and to reunite us with God through faith in him. And if we were ignorant of all of that, the single most significant and important set of facts that we could possibly be encountering in this life, if we're ignorant of that, and we lived in ignorance of that for some time, some of us longer, some of us shorter. How ignorant are we likely to be about more mundane things that are fading away? How well we know the president and what he's up to, or how well we know that country's political aims, or how well we know the Cavaliers are going to repeat, or... Uh, you know, in 2017, we all think we're experts. And we're not. And even those who are experts don't recognize how blind they are. When we speak with confidence about things we don't really know, how much better is that than lying? Honestly. And if we recognize that, I think we'd speak less. Third, words can be hurtful. We may not intend them to be hurtful, but they still end up that way. I know that one of my vices is that I can turn out a, a verbal barb pretty quickly when I want to. Sometimes it's speech, sometimes it's in text, and sometimes I mean, it's usually intended in good fun, but those things hurt. 
And even less pointed words can, can hurt. Even things that we, we assume don't have any uh, negative ramifications or any prick to them at all, sometimes they do prick unexpectedly. If we were slower to speak, we would give ourselves the opportunity to appraise our words, to ensure that they're designed to build up, not tear down, to better ensure that the message will be well received. Am I speaking this thing? It's true. It's meant to build them up. But am I speaking it in a way that they need to hear it? Not that's easy for me to express. Am I speaking it in a way that will encourage them? Or am I speaking it in a way that the point will not get across? And so will end up hurting them. Being slower to speak gives us that space to show love and compassion to one another. The third part of this command is that we must be slow to anger. The Bible usually condemns anger from us human beings, but there are a handful of passages that indicate that anger itself is not the problem. Anger itself is not bad. Uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 4 to be angry, but do not sin. And Jesus, on more than one occasion, was angry, furious. Likewise, James's instructions here suggest that anger might be appropriate from time to time. Be slow to anger, not don't ever let it get there. Generally, it takes me a long time to get really mad. Praise God for that. But there are a few things that will set me off very quickly. If I start a project like a home improvement project, this is, this is, this is recipe for, for disaster. Um, especially if I have in my mind that it's a very simple project. If I have in my mind that this is a simple project, five-minute project, 15-minute project, one-hour project, I, I got this, I got it done. And I'll just, I'll grab, oh, I don't know where that tool is, but I'll grab the nearest thing that I've got, and I'll grab whatever I can get to put, put together a little package of all the things I think I'm going to need, and it's not really what I need, but it's a simple project. I don't need all the right things. I'll, I'll get this thing done. I'll improvise because something will go wrong and so then I'll improvise on that. It gets worse and I'll improvise again and it gets worse and suddenly you know, I'm uncomfortable, I'm sweaty, I'm out of ideas, I don't have what I need, the day's getting away from me, it's been several hours at this point and then I just like, you know, I put holes in my wall or something like that that happened once. Um, but, you know, ask Sarah. Uh, the lowest point in our marriage was, was a few months in when I tried to unclog our kitchen sink and install a garbage disposal to Brent prevent it from happening again, and I don't remember what was done or said, but um, it was a very low moment. I remember that. 13 years, though. 13 years ago, we're good now. Um, <laughs> this idea, too, is taken from wisdom literature. Proverbs 16.32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Ecclesiastes 7.9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. There's a good reason why being slow to anger is such a virtue. 
And it's not always that the things we get angry about are stupid, although that is part of the equation. But the bigger truth is that God doesn't get angry with us very quickly. And this idea is repeated throughout the scriptures, and I'll just quote one of the places from Psalm 86:15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now, God will punish the guilty. He makes that abundantly clear. But he is slow to anger. In his justice, he could at any moment slay any one of us for the guilt that's on our heads. But instead of immediate, harsh anger, his first moves toward us are gentleness and kindness. As Paul writes, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so God is first soft with us that we might turn back toward him. So if we want to be like our creator, and as Christians that is our calling and should be our deep desire, then we should want to be slow to anger. That our first move toward especially our other members of our family of faith But to everyone, our first move should be kindness, should be gentleness. It's not that there's never a place or a point for anger. But in the body of Christ especially, where God is reconciling very different people together, and where unity should prevail, kindness and gentleness must, must, precede anger. And all this is a preface for James' explanation about why we should be slow to anger. James writes in verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And what James is saying here is not, he's not saying any anger that you have cannot be righteous. What he's doing is he's comparing human anger, manly anger, earthly, worldly anger with godly righteousness, not the world's righteousness. This is the big distinction. Our world has an idea of righteousness. You can turn on the TV and you can see it. There is a, uh, if you're political, there, there is a political righteousness that you're supposed to have. It looks a little different if you're on the left than if you're on the right, but there is a political righteousness you're supposed to have. And you can see it, you know, you can see it with inflammatory posts online and, and, and people marching and people screaming and, and yelling and, and, and people demanding certain ideas and demanding certain beliefs. And, and on both sides, people assuming that the other side must capitulate and cave to them, there's sort of a, a political righteousness, but it's a, it's a worldly righteousness. And you know what? Humanly, worldly anger can produce that kind of righteousness. Because, you know, so much of that is, is getting people riled up and getting people angry and getting them mad so that they go out and they, 
they vote the way you want them to vote or, or protest the way you want them to protest. You know, we can, we can do that in sports. You know, we, we, can, we can rile up sort of a worldly anger against, you know, the, that other team, you know, the, the Warriors or whoever it is for, for you or the, or the Ravens or the Steelers. You know, we just, we hate them. You know, and so we will rile up our fan base and they'll buy tickets and they'll buy jerseys and they'll, you know, and they'll, you know, Roethlisberger sucks, and, you know, whatever we need to get them to do, you know, but it's a worldly anger, but it leads to a worldly righteousness, because, you know, if you're a Browns fan, you know, that's, if you're, if you're all in with the Browns, you got to, you know, you got to toe the line, you can't just be, you can't be pro-Browns unless you just, you know, you hate the Steelers, it just has to be, it's like, you can't be an Ohio State guy if you don't hate Michigan, you know, it's part of the orthodoxy, Right? It's part of the doctrinal convictions you signed up for. You cannot, you cannot pick and choose. There, so there is a worldly type of righteousness that, that a worldly type of anger can stir up. But the things that we tend to get worked up about in this world, in our natural selves, in our fleshly selves, in our worldly selves, never produces the kind of righteousness that God desires. The kind of righteousness that, that reflects God's holy and good character, his loving kindness, his mercy, and his graciousness. The, the worldly things we get angry about can never produce that kind of righteousness. There is a godly anger. And a godly anger is directed at the things that we saw that Jesus' anger was directed at. And how was Jesus' anger directed? At sin and death. When Jesus saw the money changers in the temple, he was furious. You know he was furious because he took out a whip and he overturned their tables and he drove them out of there. Because what they were doing was extortion. It was sinful. It was wicked. And it took a place that was supposed to be the sole meeting place of God's people with their God and turned it into a commercial enterprise. And so Jesus, in his anger, drove them out. When Jesus goes to the tomb of Lazarus, his friend... The brother of his friends. It says he was furious. Sometimes the translations soften it a little bit. But he was angry. What was he angry at? He was angry at death. That the sin of this world produces. Jesus was often angry at a lack of faith. Which is the greatest and first of all sins. Refusing to trust the one who made us. So if you're angry, if you've got anger issues, God's not saying you have to get rid of your anger. God's saying you need to redeem your anger. You need to direct your anger at the things that God is also angry at. And God wants you to be angry at sin. He wants you to be angry at death. And you know where that starts? It starts in our own hearts. 
is revealing, man, I speak too quickly. Man, I just, I tune people out. I don't listen to them. I don't love them with my words. I get angry too quickly. And really, I need to be angry at the fact that I get angry too quickly. I need to hate that part of myself that doesn't reflect my creator, that doesn't look like what Jesus looks like. And I've got to want to destroy that part of me. And I want to want to take that dagger of the word of God and thrust it deep into my soul and cut those parts out that I might be free and I might live for Jesus all the more. That's what I need to hate. When I see other people, there's, there's a level, I, I need to hate the Sin that's being produced in those people. And that should, that should produce in me a longing not to, not to despise the people, not to cast off the people, because I know that I'm like them. I am a sinner too who has displeased the Creator. I'm a sinner who has rejected God too often in my life and, and, and lived for years rejecting God and my Savior Jesus Christ. And so I know what it's like to live that way because I'm a sinner too. So my anger toward that sin should motivate me to show them the way that that sin can be mitigated at the cross of Jesus Christ. When I see evil in this world, be angry at the evil of the world, but I should be then motivated to to share the good news of Jesus Christ, which is the ultimate and only cure for that evil. And so the anger of man, these, these worldly things that we get stirred up about, about home improvement projects, about our, our sports teams, and about athletes, about our politics, and about, um, you know, the way somebody looked at us once, or the, or the comment someone made to us one time. The attitude that we think that someone else has, you know, it, it, we, we hold on to all of these things so deeply, and it's a worldly anger. One of the tests you know is a worldly anger is it does it distance you from that person as a person. There's a difference between distancing yourself from the sin that's in the heart of the person from distancing yourself from another human being created in God's image. That kind of anger will never produce the righteousness of God. So we take a passage like this, and it can be so easy to go over, but I just my, my prayer uh, this morning is that we do not pass over it too quickly. Because what kind of community would we be if we took seriously that we need to control our tongues and we need to control our hearts to live lives that are pleasing to God. If we became the kind of people that showed kindness and gentleness and meekness first, that were careful with our words and considerate in our listening, how well would that reflect in our Creator? Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are wicked with our tongues. And we are wicked with our tongues because in our egotistical and selfish ways, we think that what we need to say is so much more important than what everyone else 
needs to say. And so we tune them out, we don't listen, we don't hear, and we speak quickly. And then we delve into anger. And we justify our anger. And we feel good about our anger because we say we have good reasons for our anger. And we blame other people for our anger. God, we confess that we are far from you. Make us like our Savior, Jesus. Who knew at times like a sheep led to slaughter when he was to go silently. Who knew how to speak the things of the Father in their time and season. Who angered at sin and death and hostility against the good and gracious God. May our listening be like yours who listens to our prayers, even when they're selfish, even when they're silly, even when they're absurd. May our speaking be like yours, God. That though you seem quiet at times when you speak, it is like a, an eruption of a volcano across the pages of your word. May we anger like you anger, slowly, carefully, attending with gentleness and kindness first, but by no means ignoring or overlooking the evils that are right to be angry about. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ. Amen. We are going to...